Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Book Journeys Radio. This is Angela Loria, founder of the Author Incubator and creator of the Difference Process for Writing a Book That Makes a Difference. And this week on the show, we have Holly Bridges with us. Holly, are you there? I'm certainly here. Excellent. Well, Holly is the author of The Unhysterectomy, Solving Your Painful Heavy Bleeding Without Major Surgery. And if I was going to take a guess, I would say that Holly had to go through quite a bit of pain in order to be able to write this book. Am I right, Holly? You are absolutely 100% right. It's You know, I remember being a little girl at 10 years old when I sent my first story off to a publisher, and, of course, they rejected it. And the editor wrote back and said to me, write about what you know. And (laughs) so I've certainly done that with this book. Yeah. Well, so many of us have been through challenges in, in our lives, and writing a book can be an incredible way to to make a difference, to help other people in their lives, and also to kind of find healing and clarity for things that you've been through. So why don't you tell us a little about the unhysterectomy and how you came to write it and tell us what it's about. Thank you so much, and, and I should thank you in a, in a much bigger way for having me on your program. I think it's a fabulous topic for a show, and I think writers so often are overlooked, especially nonfiction writers. I find mm. there's a bit of a misunderstanding about what we go through to produce our books and the process that we go through. I mean, the process that I went through to write this book was just as creative, I think, as a person who was mapping out a, a fiction book. So I thank you for having me on. I guess yeah, I thank you for acknowledging that. I think that's true. There's so much when I say I work with authors about books, people automatically go right to fiction and there's so many writers groups and stuff about creativity but there is a, a different but but equal process for being a nonfiction writer so thanks for that you're welcome so basically like with many other things in my life it does help me to write about them so back at about 2007 i was a single mother and i was working full-time and doing freelance writing on the side to help pay the bills and I started to notice that I was having very, very heavy menstrual bleeding, heavy periods, if you will. Some media outlets shy away from me even using that term, but I think I'm among friends today. So Absolutely. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just say that I started bleeding very heavily. I was about 46, 47 years of age. So it went on for a few months, and I just thought it was normal, as most women do. We tend to compensate for these things. But then it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where... I was changing my supplies, and women will know what I mean by that. I was changing my supplies about every 60 to 90 minutes. And, oh, wow. you know, we're, we're talking about I I would have to tape together two pads, two overnight pads in an oblong. So we're talking like about 16 inches long worth of pads, and I was using super super plus tampons, and I was still soaking through those about every 90 minutes. So I started going to see my family doctor and you know how it is they they go through one thing and then another thing and they try to rule, rule out you know different treatment options so i'll try to make this quick because there's nothing more annoying than somebody going through you know the, the misery of their health problems so i'll just suffice it to say that eventually after an ultrasound i was diagnosed with benign 
non-cancerous tumors called fibroids. And I now know that fibroids are these nasty little tumors that can grow in or on the outside of a woman's uterus. And what I didn't realize, African-American women, actually probably 80% of African-American women have fibroids. The numbers are about one in four for for white women, for reasons we're not quite sure of, although some scientists are believing now that they could be related to uh, the food we eat or our environment, um, because estrogen makes fibroids grow. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of estrogen mimickers in the environment these days that some people believe are making fibroids grow. So anyway, I was diagnosed with these little tumors, and the largest one I had was about the size of a grapefruit, although I spoke with a woman a few months ago who had one the size of a basketball removed uh, from her uterus. Wow. Yeah. That's a baby. Yeah, it is a baby. And in fact, the terminology that doctors use when they diagnose you is they say, you know, you have a three-month uterus, which is what I had. Oh, you, wow. Okay. You, you, you know, you have a five-month uterus, which would be about the size of a melon. And it's it's really funny how they how they do that. You know, they they use that medical, that pregnancy analogy. Mm. And fibroids are only one of the many uh, reasons why women seek hysterectomy. But in my case, I just was so desperate for relief. I was, you know, I was anemic and I had no energy. And... I, I just said, you know, what what are what are my options? So the first gynecologist I went to see, basically, the bottom line was he said, you know, it's got to come out. Your you uterus has to come out, and and that's what most women are told if they happen to see sort of an old school gynecologist, as I as I saw. And so I I was so desperate. This had been going on for about a year and a half. I just said, okay, that's it. Just take it out. I'm done because I just couldn't take the bleeding anymore. And so I was scheduled to have the hysterectomy, and then about three weeks before my surgery, my sister, my middle sister, who was 52 at the time, she was suddenly killed in a car accident coming home from her son's hockey game. And mm-hmm. yeah, and so I had to give the eulogy, and I was in such shock, and it was just the worst time in all of our lives, my family's life, that I said, I can't do this. If If my sister can die coming home from her hockey game and die in a car accident. Maybe something might happen to me. So because I'd been a trained journalist, I worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here in Canada for about 15 years as an on-air journalist. I sort of went into reporter mode, and I started treating my research as if it was a story for the 6 o'clock news. Hmm. And, And so what I ended up discovering and what I write about in the book is that I wasn't alone, that A, a lot of women out there, about one in four, are suffering from this type of debilitating heavy menstrual bleeding. And B, most women are not being told about their options because their gynecologist is either not kept up with their training to perform them or doesn't even know about these options. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, what happened to me. And through my own re- through my own research, I ended up finding a doctor right in my own ho- hometown who performed some high-tech surgeries, and I never looked back. And when did you know it would be a book? Or when did you get the idea that it would be a book? I knew as a journalist kind of intuitively when I first found out that my first gynecologist never told me about my options. I was so enraged, you know, I wanted to call my local newspaper that day. But the idea to do the book really came about after the surgery that stopped my bleeding 
I met with my second gynecologist for coffee because I said to him, you know, <laughs> this, this is too good to keep to ourselves. So it was about a year after my surgery, about two and a half years after my first symptoms, and I said, what can I do? What can we do to raise awareness? And maybe it's just because I'm a writer and that's my stock and trade, but I said, I'm going to write a book about this. And uh, and that's when I got the, the idea, and I asked Dr. Singh if he would be my medical editor because I knew that I wouldn't be qualified to write about a lot of the medical information unless I had someone vet it. So he agreed, and he volunteered all of his time. Wow. And that's a great example of, um, I talk a lot when I'm coaching um, one-on-one with authors, that you don't have to have all the information before you start writing your book. So that's an amazing story of collaboration. From From that coffee until you were holding your book in your hands, how long was that time period for you? Um. The whole thing, I would say, about two years. Um, okay. Only, only because you know what it's like when you work, you have kids. Uh, my children had been going through a bit of a rough time um, in our family life for reasons which are not related to the book whatsoever. But my first priority is and always has been my children. So um, we agreed that we would do the book. But in earnest, um, I began to research it for the following year on and off, I began to collect studies and, you know, re- research online and kind of start to organize my files and and collect interviews because my book is not just medical information. I actually have one-on-one personal interviews that I did with patients and doctors and experts and women who have had some of these high-tech procedures. So I began to amass these interviews, get them transcribed, collect my file files, and it was a year ago, January, that I, I rented an apartment downtown because I've, I've since remarried. So I rented an apartment where I live, and I closeted myself away for a month, and I began to write the book. I still needed another month to really finish it. It took me about two months to write it. And, and it's funny. I don't know what other writers' processes are like. Maybe they're very different. But for me, the writing is the icing on the cake. You know, it's it's the easy part. What do you mean by that? It, well, because the, tell me what the harder stuff is. The harder stuff for me, writing a nonfiction book about a medical topic when I'm not a doctor, it was gathering my proof. It was gathering my information, the studies, because every fact that right. I, every every claim that I make in my book, I had to be able to back it up. And I think that's just my old journalistic sense, my old editor's voice, you know, that mm-hmm. monkey the monkey on my back saying, attribution, attribution, attribution. You always have to attribute your sources. And so I had to make sure my sources were ironclad. And so gathering the information was the hard part, was making sure that I had enough proof for what I was trying to argue. And so um, then then once I had the research and the information, then I had to map out the structure for the book the the chapter outline and 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 everything like that and I I must confess and I'm opening my kimono here but I have two learning disabilities which also um hamper my ability sometimes to organize my thoughts and that was something I had to overcome earlier on in my career in journalism and I thankfully had some really great editors but this was the first time I'd ever written anything that big I mean when you're a broadcast journalist and you're writing 90 second 
three so minutes many. probably, right? Yeah. yeah. I'd never, the, the thought, it, it had always been my dream since I was five years old to write a book. But knowing that I had these disabilities, which I was only diagnosed with a few years ago, I thought, I'll never be able to do it. That's my Mount Everest, right? And it took me it took me a long time to map out the chapter outline. I really struggled because something that big for me was a challenge. But once I kind of took a deep breath and, and did you have help? What were some of the ways that you got through that? Give us I don't know, give it give us a couple tips though if people have similar problems because I think that's a place a lot of people get stuck. So what advice would you give to yourself now in retrospect? I would say, obviously, from a philosophical point of view, I started with the end in mind of what what is it that I want women to take away once they read this book. And the answer was, I want them to be armed with all of the treatment options available to them for painful, heavy menstrual bleeding, a one-stop shop approach, because there's so much information available on the Internet, and you never know how credible it is. Plus, women like to hear what other women have experienced, so... I had that vision in mind. I created my end zone, if you will, and I worked backwards. And I applied all the good due diligence and the journalistic training that I have in terms of being logical. Start at the beginning. The who, what, when, where, and why, right? And so I was criticized in one review for not even getting into hysterectomy until halfway through the book. But it was really, really important to me to lay the foundation and to paint a picture for women of what heavy menstrual bleeding is so i had to really map out i i would advise other people to just you know create a logical outline don't jump all over the place create a logical outline step by step what is the story that you want to tell and break it up into individual chapters so i started with my own story because that was really important for me to share my story right off the bat and then i just mapped out the who, what, when, where, and why, the, the the five W's, and I kind of took it from there. So once, it's funny, now that I look at the chapter outline, it's very, it, it, it looks very simple and very easy. Why was it so difficult for me to come up with? But I think that was just my own challenge, and somebody else might, it might not have taken them that much time. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what is another piece of advice that you would give to somebody at the beginning of a book project based on something that now looking back you wish you knew before you started the project? It was something you knew, wish you knew about the process of being an author um, that would have helped you in your journey. The thing that comes to mind mostly, it has nothing to do with the writing or the craft. because so often it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Although... As I think I've painted already, I did have a bit of a few issues with organizing the material, and that I've already talked about that a little bit. But the, for me, the number one thing that I did not foresee was the difficulties of marketing and distributing a self-published book. It has. Been- I, wanna, I just want to stop there. So, so what? Holly's going to talk about now are things that she learned after she finished writing her book about distributing and marketing a nonfiction book. So if you are in the process of writing your book, if you're thinking about writing a book, if you started it but you can't finish and you're all consumed with writing your book, which a lot of people get stuck in that space where they're thinking about the structure and the actual writing – there are things that you can do now that don't have anything to do with writing that are going to set you up 
to be in a better position for distribution and marketing. So so tell us what you learned. Uh, absolutely. Tell us what you've learned, some of what you've learned. I'm sure it's a process. Sure. One one little tip before I get into the meat of it, I should just say to anybody out there listening who wants to write a book or is dreaming of it or is doing it, is to write every day. I mean, writing, the, the ability to write is, is a muscle, and you have to work and train that muscle. So even if you think you're not getting anywhere, you're not contributing to, you know, the most wonderful passage that day, you just have to you know, sometimes walking on a treadmill is boring, but at least you're you're doing it. And my first piece of advice for people is to just write. Even if you if you get an idea, just go to the computer and put it down on paper. You've got to hone and train your muscle, your writing muscle. So that would be my first. And don't edit yourself as you go along. Just do it. Just get it out there, and you can always edit later. But for me, it was really important because I made a conscious decision to self-publish because I felt that I had all the skills necessary to produce a book. I I thought, why should I give my profits away to a publishing house and make a buck a book, right? When I can do it myself, when I can do it myself. And so I made a conscious effort to self-publish and I've, I've been keeping up on the publishing industry over the years and kind of had some bad vibes about the future of the publishing industry and how it's really difficult to get it publisher and get an agent and you know you'll be lucky if you ever see your book in print and which shocked me because every time I go into my local bookstore there's like 50,000 books in there but anyway so but what I didn't do is I think I fell in love so much with the idea that I was now writing a book and that if you build it they will come that I did a little bit of research on how to market and distribute but just enough to make me feel that I had done my homework and, you know, didn't really have to go into any more detail. But it was only when those 5,000 boxes, or those 5,000 books showed up at my house, mm. and, and and I had to put them in the basement, and then had to start hitting the street, quote-unquote, to try and sell this book. I mean, it was a real eye-opener. And I don't know about in the States, but our biggest retail bricks-and-mortar bookseller here in Canada, they have a a policy against carrying self-published books. Right, that's chapters? Is that chapters? That's chapters. That's like noble. And so, you know, they they will not accept a self-published book except in your own local bookstore where you live. You can convince them to take them on consignment. So that was one thing. And... um, Publicity, you know, I've I've been a publicist myself, so I knew a little bit about it, and I I got a, a bit of good publicity, but um, I did not foresee that the media would be not interested in talking about heavy periods. So that's another thing people should uh-huh. people should do a real critical analysis on what their topic is and what the appetite in the media is to talk about it. Call a few media outlets and ask them. Hey, if I was to pitch you on having me on your show to talk about X, Y, and Z, is that something that you would do in theory? I thought, right, I thought, great piece of advice, fantastic yeah. piece of advice. Because I thought, you know, I, I've unearthed this. I mean, doctors are deliberately withholding information from women. This is an outrage. This should be on the cover of every newspaper, you know, until I realized that the media really didn't care. I mean, some media outlets were very progressive and did put me on the show along with my doctor my medical editor but for the most part um you know i've had media come right out and tell me that it's not ready for heavy periods and not ready for prime time so 
that was another critical piece of research I didn't do. Um, distribution to libraries. I didn't even research that. It was only after I had all those boxes sitting in my basement that I said, holy cow, how am I going to get these books into libraries? So I literally went online and copy and pasted the addresses of libraries in every major city in Canada and sent them letters. And, and did that result in placement? I sent about 100 letters, and I've probably sold altogether maybe 20 books to libraries. That's fantastic. You think it's good? Very yeah, very hard to get into libraries. And it's obviously a, a great topic. And here's a great example is, you know, while heavy bleeding and menstrual bleeding and menstrual issues might be scary or hard for the media to approach for a library, that's that's what they're there for. You know, that's the exact kind of thing that somebody would come to a library to confidentially look up. You would think, and I, that's why I was surprised that more libraries didn't come forward. And I've since found out that they're, especially in the States, because I've just come out with the second edition of the book, which is more generic and targeted towards women in the States. And uh, I'm currently researching ways to get uh, the book into American libraries. And so that, that that kind of brings up another thing, is that the other thing I didn't realize before I did this, and this is another piece of advice, I did not realize that there are book distribution companies. Oh, yeah. I had right. no idea. So that's a great piece of information. I didn't know that. I would have been on the phone with those companies before I even wrote one word. Mm-hmm. And now I they take about 80% of your uh, royalties. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that's, that's a downside. And sometimes they require a down payment of five or $10,000. This is it. This they're is out it. there. They're, and they're they will there. if they think you have the right topic. If they think you have the right marketing, or if they have the right marketing channels for you, you can get better deals than that. And I don't even know, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of American distribution companies. I, I have no mm -hmm. idea. It, it was there are hard two main ones, NAB and then Midpoint, um, which is run by Eric Hampman. Okay. Eric Hampman is the guy who did that book. Um, it was the O.J. Simpson, If I Did It. I don't think the book ever came out, but O.J. Simpson oh. was going to write that book, If I Did It. Right. that guy who owns the company, Midpoint Midpoint Books, I think it's called, Midpoint Distribution. I see. And they have great they have great distribution options, but yeah, there's there is a lot to learn and I think so many authors get so focused on writing a great book, which is important, but it's only of the whole process of being an author. I'd be interested in your number, but I would say the writing piece is less than 50%, maybe as little as 25% oh, of the whole experience. I agree. For me, it would be even less than that. For me, it would mm. be, in terms of the energy, the blood, sweat, and tears, not to mm -hmm. mention, the, not to mention we, we haven't even touched on the financial aspect. I don't even want to tell you about what I spent putting this book together because I also did market research before that and you know I hired a marketing company to do a marketing plan for me and but I made a lot of mistakes I I spent money where I didn't need to and I put money into things that I really didn't need to and I was just so anxious to try anything to get the book out there that I fell prey to people asking for my money that maybe down the road would have been worthwhile, but at the time I spent it too soon. 
and I didn't okay, leave it. Okay, so let's turn that into some advice because I think this happens to a lot of authors. You're not alone. Um, you don't know what you don't know, so you start mm-hmm. plunking down money in an attempt to make a recommendation. So when it comes to investments to make in your book, uh, give us some some advice and some general rules. Where's a good place to spend money? Where is a good place to definitely not spend money? Where would you say wait a little longer or get more referrals? Give us some of your rules of thumb. For me personally, I think the most, aside from the writing obviously and having a good editor and a good proofreader and a good an editor and a proofreader are absolute essentials. The money that you spend on a good editor and a proofreader will 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 come back to you in spades in credit in increasing your credibility. For me, the second most important thing is design. I spent weeks I spent weeks researching inside cover stock, inside paper, inside text stock, cover stock. I spent days upon days looking for my cover art. I took full management, full control of the design process. I was extremely finicky about choice of fonts. I find self pub too many self published books look they were looked like they were pasted together in somebody's basement using photocopy paper and that they were made on, you know, a Commodore sixty four. And, <laughs> and you truly can judge a book by its cover in my opinion, and not, mm-hmm. to mention, not to mention the front cover, but the back cover. So you know what I did for my back cover? I would recommend people do this. Walk into your bookstore and look at the best-selling books in your genre and study and analyze how the covers are made, how they're composed, the wording, the artwork, the white space, and then flip it over to the back and see how the back cover text is written. Because make no mistake... Just telling somebody what your book is about is not going to sell it. You have to convince the reader what it, what's in it for them, not you. Mm. And so I analyzed all of Suzanne Summers' books. Great. And, She's a great know, marketer, wonderful marketer. Exactly. Right down to, you know, how thin the lines were underneath, how she broke up sections of the back cover, types of action words she used, you know, how much white space was on the front and the back. And if I'm if I do say so myself, I am extremely proud of the artwork of my book. I I could actually it's like ice cream to me. I I just want to mm. lick it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. But, your book is on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon, yes. But I would say I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of packaging. It's it's very very important. But um, but also do your homework. Do a plan. Do a ho- do your homework. Hire a consultant. Whatever you have to do to know what you're getting into before you get into it. Because you, you're so right. You don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know anything. I thought I So what's that. something you would say to people? Do not spend money on this. No matter what happens, people are going to knock on your door. Do not spend, spend money. Do not spend money on advertising. Oh. Do not spend money on advertising until you absolutely are in a position where you can afford to, to lose the money. Because when I was... It, when I was promoting myself through paid advertising, through Google ads, you know, Facebook ads, I thought, oh, great, if you build it, they will come. How could they not buy? What I realized is that before I knew it, I racked up $3,000 in Google ads. And That's I a lot of books. And I didn't sell any books. So you, you, writers have to start thinking of every dollar they spend in terms of dollars 
they're going to make back in sales, and I wasn't doing that. So now every time someone comes to me and wants to sell me something or sell a service or a product, I have to say to myself, how many books do I have to sell to make that back? Right. So I'm thinking writers are business people. They have to think like business people, and that was a steep learning curve for me. Mm -hmm. And it has its place. Advertising is great. It's all great. All the things we need to do are great, but you have to be strategic. You have to make your money work for you and spend it strategically. And I I wasn't doing that. I was too frivolous with my money. I should have been more frugal. Yeah. And and I think it's, you know, frivolous and frugal is almost oversimplified in that you think you're being careful at the time because you don't really understand. So having a book coach or a mentor or a writer's group or listening to programs like this are all ways that you can um, kind of shore up your knowledge before you make those investments. Absolutely. So, I mean, you a- you asked me earlier, you know, looking back, looking back on all the money that I've spent and all the hours that I've spent and the sweat and the tears, if I had known from the beginning that I could have potentially worked with someone like a coach or someone like that, who could take the place of what would be probably my editor if I had gotten a publishing deal to work with me through the whole process. And so I would go into it with my eyes open. Spending, let's say, I don't know, 20 grand on that would have saved saved me the 60 grand that I wasted on other marketing tools. Yeah, right. it's hard to know that in the front, but that's exactly why I do Book Journeys Radio. So every week on Book Journeys, we talk to another author about their experience writing a nonfiction book. Holly Bridges, our guest today, um, is the author of The Unhysterectomy. You can go to theunhysterectomy.com and see her beautiful book, which I also think looks like ice cream. I might want to eat it. (laughs) Your website is beautiful. There's great articles and advice there. So, Holly, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this, and it's just so wonderful knowing that there's a show out out there like this for writers and for, for editors and publishers. So congratulations on what you're doing, and thanks for being interested in my book. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Holly. Take care. And here we are. We are at the end of another episode of Book Journeys Radio. We're changing the world one book at a time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.